0: Ephesians is a book of the Bible that offers encouragement and hope for our everyday lives. So let's take a look back at where it all began. The book of Ephesians was written by Paul to the Christians living in Ephesus, an ancient Rome city, now modern-day Turkey. The book contains Paul's teachings on faith obedience, and how to live faithfully as individuals and as a Christian community. In this series, Pastor Bank takes us on a journey through Ephesians that will help us understand how blessed believers are, our position in Christ, and how our blessings should be reflected in our lives in the world. Remember this, God can use us to do his work in this world, no matter where we are or what struggles we may face. As long as you are seeing yourself as God sees you.
1: Well, praise the Lord and welcome to the continuation of our teaching from the book of Ephesians. And for this segment, I'm continuing doing the message on walking in your identity, part two. Again, walking in your identity, part two. I did part one previously at the last segment. So I'm going to read the scripture, the opening scripture from Ephesians chapter one, verse five, from the New Living Translation. And it says... God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. In the last segment, I mentioned how your identity as a child of God is the highest ranking in the kingdom of God. It surpasses being an engineer, a professor, a doctor, a rocket scientist, president, governor, any title you can imagine or think about. Your identity as a child of God is the highest ranking as far as the kingdom of God is concerned. And it's your key to living a victorious life. In the kingdom of God. Amen. Now, you'll recall that the very first temptation in all of scripture was in the garden of Eden. And it was with regards to the identity of Adam and Eve. We read this in Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 where this tempter, Satan, told Eve that if she ate, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She will be like God. Okay? Right there, addressing her identity. Unfortunately, for Adam and Eve, they were already like God because they were made in the image and likeness of God. Secondly, after God introduced Jesus to the world in Matthew chapter 3, we were told that the heavens opened and that the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove and made an announcement to the world that this, Jesus, is my beloved Son in whom I am well-placed. And in Matthew chapter 4, the next chapter in verses 3 and 6, we are told that Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And what did the devil tempt him with? In verse 3 and verse 6, If thou be the son of God. Again, addressing his identity, wanting him to doubt who he really was. Why? Because the enemy understands that any child of God who truly embraces his or her identity as a child of God is a huge threat to the kingdom of the devil. Amen? So your identity as a child of God is the highest ranking there is in the kingdom of God, and is your key to living a victorious Christian life. Now, all of us, when we become born again, became admitted or had entry into being part of the family of God. Every born again believer, the moment you begin, the moment you became born again, you were admitted into the family of God. However, from what we are learning in the book of Ephesians, Paul takes this issue of our identity a little further. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, which I just read, that we have been adopted into the family of God, which means, which means in the original Greek, being adopted means you and I were placed as adult sons into the family. And the distinction between adoption and being born again is that in this position of being adopted, your position and involvement in a family is now guaranteed. You're not just placed in the family. You are positioned. You are in union. You are a child of God. But more importantly, you are an adult son and therefore involved in the family. So spiritual adoption does not speak of how we enter into the family, but rather it speaks to us of our involvement with the family. I want to say in the previous teaching that as members of the family of God, we received an inheritance. We see this in Ephesians chapter one in verse 11. We have obtained an inheritance and I taught on this ex- exhaustively in another segment and I, I advise and encourage you to get that teaching so you can be familiar with your inheritance which is available to you right now and so going on into this teaching walking in your identity and this is part two it is important that while we are we are heavenly beings we are positioned we are seated together with jesus in the heavenly places while we are heavenly beings The reality of our being heavenly being must be seen in our homes, in our offices, in our shops, kitchens, everywhere we are. It's God's intention that we practice who we are in heaven here on the earth. The goal of heaven is that the kingdom, is that, that Uh, 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 that you and I will be able to live here on the earth what is actually real in heaven. God's intention, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 16, is that thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Paul, in chapters 4 through 6, addresses a various list of relationships. I mentioned this in the previous teaching, relationships relationships with other believers, relationships uh, with our neighbors, marital relationships, uh, parental relationships, work relationships. It uses all these various levels of our relationships to challenge us as heavenly beings as men and women who are positioned in Christ, who are seated with God in our use, these relationships to give us a charge, a challenge. Remember how we started this walking in your identity? Ephesians chapter four, verse one, that says we should walk worthy of the call or of the vocation wherein we've been called. We should walk, we should put foot. we should put feet to the fact that we are heavenly beings. Our conduct on the earth should reflect the fact that we are seated together with Christ in the heavenly places. So now, Paul now says, okay, these this various relationships is the laboratory, is the place where we should leave these things out. He now gives us, and I'm going to give you a summation of some of the things he said in chapters 4 through 6. Some of the summation of what Paul said. Let me read them to you. He says, walk. With, with long suffering. It says, forbear one another. It says, putting away falsehood. It says, speak the truth, each one with his neighbor. It says, be ye angry and sin not. It says, still no more. It says, let all bitterness be put away from you. It says, "Be ye kind, forgiving each other." It says, "Subjecting yourselves to one another." It says, "Provoke not; be obedient, forbearing, threatening." We find all this. All these phrases are just right. We find them all through from chapters four through six. Remember, chapters four through six of the Book of Ephesians is supposed to be the chapters. That is practical. This is where we put our feet to the position we already have in chapters 1, 2, 3. This is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Okay? The list of imperatives I just read to you have to do with our various relationships. Now, it is very interesting that Jesus, when he came on the scene in, in, in Matthew chapter 5, uh, on the teaching on the Sermon of the Mount, He gave a similar message. Let me just read it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. This is what he says. He said, You have heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He said, But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever stops you, no, rather, whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Verse 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, this this Jesus' opening message from the book of Matthew, chapter five, verses thirty-eight through forty-eight. So the bottom line is in this passage, like Paul, Jesus is addressing all manner of circumstances and situations that take place in relationships. Because the bottom line is relationships are where. We live out our heavenly characteristics. That's it. Relationships. That's where we live out everything God has given us and God is doing in us and through us. So because we're in relationships with one another, guess what's going to happen? We're going to offend one another. We're going to wrong one another. We're going to irritate one another. There are going to be potential situations in relationships for conflict. That's it. So you feel you have been wronged, perhaps terribly wronged, and you cannot bring yourself to forgive. You are in the right, and your enemy's action has been wholly unjust. So to love him or her may be ideal, but it's almost impossible, you think? Of course, in a natural, it is absolutely impossible. Nothing has done greater damage to a Christian testimony than are trying to be right and demanding of others. We become preoccupied with what is and with what is not right. We ask ourselves, have we been justly or unjustly treated? And we think of vindicating our actions. As Christians, our standard of living can never be right, Or wrong but the cross the principle of the cross is our standard of conduct with God it's a question of his grace not right or wrong grace-filled people must be gracious forgiving each other even as God in Christ forgave us Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 Right and wrong is the principle of the old man from which we've been separated. Our life should now be governed by the principle of the cross and the perfection of the Father. We read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. What is the perfection of the Father? Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, in the message translation. In the message translation. Watch this. This is what it says. In a word. What I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects. Now live like it. You're a kingdom subject. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others. The way God lives towards you. That's it. That's it. Matthew chapter 5 sets a standard that we may feel, well, it's impossible. But Paul, in this second section of the book of Ephesians, endorses it completely. You see, the problem is not that we just don't, uh, the the problem is that we just do not find it in our nature, uh, the means to attain this seemingly high standard which Paul describes in Ephes- Ephesians chapter five, verse three, as to walk as becoming saints. Ephesians five, three, to walk as becoming saints. You see, there's a way in which saints should walk, and there's a way in which heathens do walk. As saints, which means we are the children of God, which means we have the identity of God, which means we are created and made in God's image and likeness, which means we are seated together with Christ in the heavenly places as saints there is a particular way God expects for me and you to walk in our various levels of relationships. Now, like I said, all those imperatives that Paul gave us and what Jesus just said in Matthew chapter 5, it's almost impossible to accomplish in the natural mind. Therefore, what is the answer to our problem of God's exacting demands? What is the answer? In other words, how how do we attain to do the list of imperatives that Paul listed from Ephesians chapter 4 through 6? And all the things we just read right now in Matthew chapter 5 in verses 8 through 48 from Jesus. How? How do we carry this out? The fact that it's hard does not say that we we, will be exempted from it. Now, I said in one previous message that the Holy Spirit is the sole executor of our inheritance. Or, to say it in a different way, the Holy Spirit is the only one that can help you and I live like God wants us to live. He's the one working in us so that we can work out our heavenly being. The Holy Spirit. Now, let me tell you how the Holy Spirit... Let, let, let me tell you the, the, the uh, how we must be so yielded to this Holy Spirit. We see a passage in Acts chapter 16. Now, let me just give a background. Background is the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and told those disciples, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem In Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. When Paul became saved, God gave him a charge to go and preach to the Gentiles. Okay? So mind you, Paul is now on his way to do what God asked him to do, which is to preach to the Gentiles. But now we come to Acts chapter 16. The reason you and I need to learn how to walk in our identity The reason we must learn how to walk, you see, what seems to be most expedient for us is not always what God wants us to do. Let me say that again. What may appear to be the most expedient thing may not be what the Holy Spirit is trying to do at that particular time. I give the example on the last message, how that in Exodus 13, God led Israel out of Egypt And even though there was a shorter route from Egypt to to, to the promised land, God chose to take them on the roundabout way. Why? Because God foresaw that they will see or encounter war before they were prepared for it. And therefore, they will have backed down and returned back to Egypt. So God, being the one that was leading them through the pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night guided them in a safer route so that they would not return back to Egypt. In other words, God undertook for them. Okay? Now, the Bible tells me and you in Acts, no, not Acts, in Romans chapter 8, I believe verse 26, that you and I do not know what to pray for as we ought to. We don't. But it's the Holy Spirit. Here we go again. That is the Holy Spirit that's praying for us. Why? So that he, the Holy Spirit, knows the mind of God and is praying for us according to the will of God. So what I'm saying to you and I is the reason we trust God in walking is that we should not choose what we think is most expedient. There's a reason for Jesus being the truth, the, uh, the being the way, the truth, and the life. Look at the, do you see what his name is? Is the way. The truth and the life. He knows the way that is right for us. So in Acts chapter 16, even though Paul has begun the church to preach to the Gentiles, look at what we read in Acts 16, verses 6 and 7. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now, That's amazing. They were going to go in one direction and the Holy Spirit forbid them. Don't go there. Now this is the same Holy Spirit that says go preach. Verse 7. After they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. Twice. Twice. Now, if Paul wanted to say, well, I'm, I'm my own man. I'm filled with the Holy Ghost. I'm the Apostle of Grace. I've planned my itinerary. I'm going to go. He could do that, but we will not get the same result. And that's what's happened to many of us. We choose our own course. We choose our own way. We decide what we want to do, and we ask for the Holy Spirit to endorse it. It doesn't work like that. You see, if we are seated together with him in heavenly places, then we must totally, completely surrender our will to him and allow him to be the guide that leads us i remember in john chapter 21 i believe it was jesus was speaking to peter he said when you are young you went wherever you want to go he said but the day is coming when another one will take you by the hand and take you to places you don't want to go that's where we are you see all things are lawful but all things are not expedient amen so the secret to God's demanding or exacting demands, the secret on how to live and how to uh to to, to be victorious and how to live out this what, what appears to be exacting demands of God. The secret is in the words of Paul in Ephesians 3.20. He said, he, what, did, what did he say? It he says Ephesians 3.20. It talks about how uh, um uh wow, the scripture is just escaping right now. Let me just open it up. Hallelujah. That's us keep escape me just just that quick. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above that which we're able to think or ask according to the power of God that's working in us. Did you did you get that? God. Is able to do exceedingly abundantly above that which you and I are able to think or ask. How? How is He able to do it? How? How? According to His power that works in us. What's that power? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. In another passage, in Colossians chapter one, verse twenty-nine, Paul again he tells us. He says, "I labor also." Striving according to His working, which He works in me mightily. <laughs> so, how are we going to meet this exacting demands of God? How? All the list of the imperatives I read to you from Ephesians chapter four through six, and what Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, verses thirty-eight to 48 Yeah, Matthew chapter five, verses thirty-eight to forty. How many? What are we going to live that out? In the natural, way, you can't. You fall on your feet, on your face, flatly. No way, by arms, by man's flesh, no one shall prevail. You can't do it, but He can do do it through you, and that's what He wants to do. He is the one that in that indwells us, and He wants to live out His own life through us. What is the secret strength of the Christian life? From where? Does a Christian derive its power? The answer in one sentence. This Christian's secret is his rest in Christ. Oh, hallelujah. His power derives from his God-given position. This is the reason you have to be seated first. Because the power, to live out these exacting demands, these things that seem insurmountable, that seem impossible, the ability to do them, to live through and live like that, comes from you at rest in Christ and from you being seated with Him in the heavenly places. You see, we sit forever with Christ that we may walk continuously before man. And let me say that again. Hallelujah. We sit forever with Christ, that we may walk continuously before men. Forsake for a moment your place of rest in him, and immediately we are tripped. That's simple. Did you you remember what happened with Peter in Matthew chapter 14 when he called out to the Lord and said, If it's you, the Lord, Lord, bid me to come, bid me to come and walk on water? As long as he was focused on Jesus, as long as Jesus was his focus, it was fine. But the moment he took his eyes off of Jesus and began to look at the circumstances, he began to sink. For me and you, as long as we have our rest in him. And what does that rest mean? Author reliance and dependence upon Jesus's resources. Rest in him means, alter reliance and complete dependence on the finished work of Christ. As long as we rest in him, the supply, the ability, the power, to accomplish whatever it is we need to do in our various relationships are released to us. Amen? For sake, for a moment, i rest in him and immediately we are tripped. But abiding in Christ and our position there ensures the power to walk worthy of him here in the earth. I'm going to close by leaving you an illustration. And I hope this helps you. Now, this is not a perfect illustration by any means. Think of a man in a car. How does he go? How does how, how does he how does he move? How does he go? How does he travel? A man in a car. How does he travel? A man in a car. In order for him to travel, he must first sit in the car before he can go. A man who's going to drive a car to travel, to go from point A to point B. How does it go? Again, he must of necessity first sit before he can go. Now, secondly, he keeps going because he remains seated. First, he must sit and he goes but he keeps going because he remains seated. Amen? His progress in his journey is born out of his position of being seated in Dhaka. That is the same call that we are being called upon to do or to walk in. We are seated together with Christ in heavenly places. Now as a result of being seated and realizing that the Holy Spirit of God is the one that works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. From that position of being seated, Jesus is now able to live his life through us in our various levels of relationship, relationships with our neighbors, relationship with other believers, marital relationships, parental relationships, and relationships in the workplace. So Paul had seen himself seated in Christ. Therefore, his walk before man takes its character from the Christ that's dwelling in him. That's why in his prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, he closes that chapter out by saying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so as I close out this segment, that's my prayer for you to, today or tonight, whenever you are listening to this message. I pray in the name of Jesus, the son of the living God, that Christ will continue to dwell in your hearts through faith so that you are enabled to live the and above the expectations of your natural man. And so, Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for every man and every woman under the sound of my voice, that they realize first and foremost who they are and whose they are, that they are a child of the living God and that being your child is the greatest identification any of us can ever have. Identification that's rooted in eternal work that Jesus has done for us before the foundation of the world began. And then, in being in understanding that we are your children, we have a, a confident expectation of things that you are doing in and through us. That we have an inheritance which is obtainable by us right now in this moment because we believe. And that, Lord God, in Jesus' name, as a result of being seated together with you in the heavenly places, we'll be able to live out this life in the world in which we live in and thereby bring glory and honor unto your name. Thank you, Father God, that we're going to rely on the Holy Spirit who's our aid, our helper, to help us to live out your expectations in and through us. We thank you. We honor you. We bless you now and forever lord god in jesus mighty name amen and amen i love you and uh i have one more session to go in being able to finish this series on the book of ephesians from chapters one through five and the next message will be on redeeming your time redeeming your time amen god bless you see you at the
0: next segment